0: So as, as Peter mentioned, uh, we're in week three of a five-part series on the life of Joseph. Joseph, probably one of the most well-known characters in the Old Testament, thanks to certain Mr. Andrew Lloyd Webber and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, but Joseph, it's been a, fas- a fascinating series, and the series is called, Where is God in This? So we've, we've seen, as uh, we've gone through the life of Joseph, life didn't always work out as he would have expected, or as he would have hoped. So lots of things happened to Joseph that weren't great, And we've seen how that's often the case with us as well. Our lives don't always work out as we'd expected or as we hope. But in the mess, in the trials, God is there. Even though we can't always see him, he's always there. He's always caring. He's always there. So where is God in this? We've been thinking about the the kind of everyday stuff of life. The trials, the tensions, the frustrations. We get ill, things go wrong. Today, we're going to go a little bit deeper. So we're thinking today about the trials and the sufferings They go a little bit beyond the everyday, a little bit beyond the garden variety sufferings that just make up the stuff of life. We're thinking about when the storm hits, when the storm really hits. So a spouse betrays you or injures you in some way. There's the sudden death of a family member, somebody close to you, a brother, sister, son, daughter, unborn child, mother, father, and suddenly they're gone. A habitual sin that you've kept secret is exposed and everything blows up in your face. You're facing financial ruin. You get a tumour and it's malignant and it's not operable. A loved one that you care about is abused in a way that makes you feel sick. Persistent, ongoing depression that just can't be shaken and can't be explained. The stuff of life when it goes a little bit beyond the everyday. When the storm hits. When it feels like things are in meltdown. Maybe as I say those kind of things you're thinking... I'm not there yet. I've not been there yet. Well, usually we just need to live long enough and we will suffer in this way. These kind of trials come. They hit us. And they hit us without us knowing where from, without expecting. Um, A few years ago, I had a reunion with some old friends and it had been a few years since we met up. And as we were talking together and catching up and sharing what, what had happened in our lives, we were struck that there was one thing we all had in common. And that is that we'd suffered more than the last time we were together a few years before. One guy Found a lump in his throat and it was cancer. It wasn't as bad as he'd expected, but he wasn't in the clear yet. Another guy's marriage struggling. Another guy, close family member, got involved in a, a sex scandal that was ripping the whole family. We were in the midst of a season where we'd had recurrent miscarriages with no explanation. We'd all suffered. So maybe you're not there yet, but I expect you will be. Or maybe you, as I think, as I speak about those things, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you can think of the date and the time when you got that phone call or where your husband or wife or your son or daughter said that thing to you. You know where you were. Maybe you're in the middle of a storm right now. Maybe this this is describing your current existence. And when we're in those storms, when that stuff happens, the question we've been thinking about is more pointed than ever. Where is God in this? Where is God in this? When life really hurts, how can we make sense of life? How can we make sense of God when things are falling apart? And for many people, in those times, that's the reason that causes them to turn their back on God. They walk away. They say, I, I can't square God existing with what I'm going through. What we're going to see today in the passage we're looking at um, in Genesis is that Joseph was probably at his lowest point. He was, life was falling apart for him. And as we look at what happened to him, and as we try and make sense of his suffering... We're going to see how it helps to make sense of ours. And what we're going to discover is a principle. A principle that's not comfortable, but is profoundly, deeply important. Crucial, as we seek to understand and make sense of the hard times that we go through. And it's a principle that has the power to transform those times. To transform the way we approach them, and the way we handle them, to make a difference. And maybe you're here, and you have turned your back on God. And maybe as I speak, you'll realize that what I'm describing from the Bible is a different God to what you thought he was. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 40. If you've not got a Bible, then stick a hand up. It'd be great to have this passage open in front of you. On these, um, in these black Bibles, it's page 33. So stick a hand up and Peter will bring one over. Um, so page 33 in these black Bibles. And we're going to look at a pretty big chunk today. We're going to look at uh, chapters 40 and 41, the whole thing. So um, I'm not going to read every single verse. The passage basically splits up into three scenes, three major scenes. So we're going to walk through them and talk about what's happening, and then we're going to step back and see this principle that's, that's at work in this section and then see how it connects with our lives and how it applies to us and our suffering. So Genesis 40 and 41, three scenes, and scene one is Joseph in prison. So we're picking up from where we left off last week, so if you were here last week, You'll remember Peter was talking about Joseph. He's, he started off his life in, in Canaan with his family. He got sold as a prisoner to Egypt. He was working for a guy called Potiphar. His wife had a thing for him. He resisted temptation, did the right thing, but got put in prison. And that happens to us sometimes. We do the right thing, and God doesn't bless us in the way we were hoping. And, and it feels like things are going wrong. So Joseph's there. He's in prison, and he's facing in that prison the challenge of injustice. He's done nothing wrong. He's done the right thing. And he's had his freedom taken away from him. And maybe you know that feeling. You know the challenge of injustice. Something being done to you that's not right, that you didn't earn, that's not fair. So today we pick up the story, and it's about nine or ten years later. So Joseph is aged 28 now. So he was thrown into prison, we think maybe around 18, 19 years old. That's a long time to be in prison. And those are the best years of his life. Those sort of nine, ten years, his prime years, where he's full of energy, he can go and change the world, and he's stuck between four walls. So he's facing the challenge not only of injustice, but the challenge of waste, wasted years. And maybe you know that too. Maybe you know the challenge of waste, a decision you've made or a decision that someone else has made that's just wasted time, wasted energy, wasted years of your life. Maybe you know that. So let's pick up the story, Um, Genesis chapter 40, and we're going to start from verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offence against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. So just a pause a moment there, a little bit of background. The job of cupbearer, was an important job. Sounds like a nothing to us. But actually, the chief cupbearer to the king of Egypt was a position of real influence, a position where he could speak to the king every day. He, he tasted the, the, the stuff that the pharaoh drank, the wine, to check it wasn't poisoned, then gave it to him. He was a person who was trusted by the pharaoh. This is a big dog. And the chief baker is also pretty important. He's, he's the head of a big uh, sort of section of pharaoh's employment, the kitchen, and both of them have done something wrong, and they've been thrown into this prison. So they're guys of status, they're high-ranking government officials. And Joseph is quite a long way below them in status. He's a Hebrew slave. We see that because Joseph attended them. He was appointed to serve them in the prison. So he's down here, they're up here. Verse 5, and one night they both dreamed. They both have these dreams, each his own dream, each dream with his own interpretation. And Joseph comes down to them in the morning and he sees they're troubled. He sees something's wrong with them. And he asked them, what's the matter? Why are your faces downcast today, he says. And they say to him, verse 8, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So again, dreams are an important thing in ancient uh, Near East, in in the Egyptian culture at the time. So dreams were a way that uh, rulers, pharaohs, received guidance from the gods. So the job of interpreting a dream was a really important job. It was a good thing to have on your CV. If you wanted to get a job in the Egyptian government, I can interpret dreams. So these guys, they've had these dreams, they know they're significant in some way, but there's no one to interpret them. The gods have spoken and they, they don't know what to do with it. They don't have to have the guidance they need in their culture. So they, you can see why they're downcast. And you can see how Joseph speaks with real faith here. He says, "'Do not interpretations belong to God. "'I know a God who's got dreams.'" You don't need the magicians and wise men, so tell them to me. He's, he's confident, he's bold, but he's also humble. He says, God's got them. It's not me, it's God. And we'll see more of that later on. So Jesus says, tell your dreams to me. And they tell them, the cupbearer goes first. He says, so I had, there was this vine, and there were these three branches, and there were buds, and the buds turned into grapes, and I squeezed the grapes, and there was a cup in my hand, and I squeezed the grapes into the cup, and then the pharaoh was there, and I gave the cup to pharaoh. What's going on? And Joseph, calmly, confidently, without hesitation, here's the interpretation. The three grapes, the three branches are three days. In three days you'll be released. The Pharaoh's going to lift your head up and he'll reinstate you to your position. Wow. And then Joseph says, verse 14, only remember me when it's well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also... I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And you can see, can't you, Joseph's sense of injustice and how much he's struggling with it. It's hard. This is a hard experience for him. He's been taken from his home, done nothing wrong. He's got a job where he was, a slave, but he's, again, done nothing wrong and he's in prison. But he sees, he sees this, this could be a God thing. So just put in a good word for me when you're out, please. Just remember me, please. And the baker's standing listening. He says, that was good. I'll have a go. So Joseph, here's my dream. I had these three baskets on my head and the baskets were filled with bread and there were these birds and they were sort of eating the bread out of the top basket. So what's going on? And again, Joseph, calm, confident. Here's the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh's going to lift your head up and take it off. You're going to be executed. Not what the baker wanted to hear, right? But Joseph trusts God. He says, God's got the interpretation. Here it is. And guess what? Guess what happens? Verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So let's just pause here a minute and just imagine what's going on in Joseph's mind at this point. First of all, whoa! Whoa! It really happened. This is what God gave me to predict. And three days later, and the chief cupbearer's gone and the the bakers. It's happened. Wow, I I stepped out. That was a risk. And I stepped out in faith and God's come through. Wow, he's really there. And second, hold on. The chief cupbearer is going back to Pharaoh. He's going back to that position of influence. He's going to see him every single mealtime. He's going to have a voice in his ear. And I've just given him my business card. I've just interpreted the dream and it's come true. This is it. This is my big break. And then we read verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And that must have shattered him like a knife through the heart. This was his big break. He had everything. It was, it was going to happen. But he blew it. A big chance, gone, slipped through his fingers. And I guess Joseph didn't realize straight away. The first day after the chief cupbearer got out, He's waiting for the knock on the door. This is it. He's going to come and say, we've reopened your case. Come on, Joseph, out you come. The day goes by and nothing happens. A week later, he's starting to get a bit anxious, but I'm sure he's just waiting for his moment. He's just waiting for his moment to mention me to Pharaoh. Two weeks, three weeks, a month. Gradual sinking feeling. He's forgotten me. Two months, three months go by. And those are hard times for Joseph. Those are hard times. He he had his big moment, and it's gone. slipped through his fingers. He did everything he could And it's gone. And then the scene changes. And we're now no longer in the prison. We're in Pharaoh's bedroom. Chapter 41, verse 1. Have a look down. After two whole years, two whole years, Joseph was in that position. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh woke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of corn, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So you can imagine the scene. We're there in the middle of the night and Pharaoh's in his presidential suite in the palace on his king-sized bed and he's having these dreams and they feel so real and so vivid and he wakes up and it's the middle of the night but he, he can't get back to sleep. He's tossing and turning. Morning comes, daybreak. He sits up in his bed, rings his bell. Servant enters the door. Get me the wise men, all of them, and all the magicians, go. Servant runs out, gets on his phone. The wise men are there, they're, they're just waking up. Their wives are saying, what's going on? I need to go to the palace. They get their clothes on. The wise men are outside the door. Servant knocks on the door, opens up, and Pharaoh's there in his dressing gown, pacing up and down by his bed. His breakfast's there on the tray. It's scrambled eggs and caviar and toast. And it's, it's cold, it's untouched. And he he's, turns around. The wise men line up, biting their, their lips. And he says, I want to know the interpretation of this dream. Here's what I dreamed. Tell me the interpretation. And they're looking between each other and they're saying, you first, you first. They try. They, one person says one thing, another person says another thing, but they can't agree. And none of the interpretations have got the ring of truth, the ring of authority. None of them can interpret. And then the chief gut standing there by the cold cup of tea, he, he has a, a light bulb moment. He goes, there was a Hebrew slave. There was a Hebrew slave. When we made our offences... We got put in prison, me and the chief baker, and we dreamed on the same night, he and I, and we both had this interpretation, and this young Hebrew was there, this servant, and he interpreted our dreams to us, and as he interpreted to us, it came about, and I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. This is it. This is Joseph's big break. Now have a look at verse 14, what happens next. It's just like a whirlwind. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Again, let's just pause for a moment and imagine what's going through Joseph's mind at this point. So this is, it's been a normal day. He woke up. And it was a normal day. He put on his normal clothes, same four walls. And then there's the knock on the door. Two years later, the knock on the door. And the servant comes, Joseph, you're needed. He gets this makeover. He gets up to the, the palace. Pharaoh's dressed by this point. He's in his courtroom. And he's being asked a question that could change his life. I've got this dream. I've heard you can interpret dreams. Tell me what you think. Now, this is his big break. This is a chance for him to show his skills a chance for him to show what he can do, to get the ultimate record on his CV, the ultimate reference, Pharaoh's interpretation. And we're thinking, we go to a job interview, and we brush up, we have to perform, we try and answer the right questions, put put ourselves in a good light to try and get selected. Imagine how much more Joseph is thinking that. And the stakes are so much higher. It's like that interview, times a 1,000. The difference is between getting released and being respected and getting a good job, potentially if he gets it wrong, being killed. So what does he say? Verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And you think, what's he doing? What's he do? Why does he bring another God into this? Why doesn't he just say, I can do it. I've got the interpretation. Check me out. And can I have a reference please? What, what's he doing? This is, this is a, an incredible act of Faith. By Joseph and courage to say, You've not got the right guy, but you've got the right God. And he goes ahead calmly, confidently. Pharaoh tells him his dream. There's the plump cows, the thin cows, the plump cows ate the thin cows, and there's the plump corn, the thin corn, the plump corn ate the thin corn, and and Joseph takes it all in, takes a breath. Verse 25 says to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears, blighted by the east wind, are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them... There will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So notice how he repeats his point. He's he's there before Pharaoh, and he's saying repeatedly, the dream's from God. God's revealed something to Pharaoh, God's shown something to Pharaoh, God's got the interpretation for you. The thing is fixed by God. It's not me, it's him. But if that's not enough, he goes beyond just interpreting the dream. He takes a step out of what he's been asked to do. And he goes and gives advice. He goes beyond interpretation to actually suggesting a government policy proposal in light of what He's heard. So verse 33, he says, "'Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select the discerning and wise man.'" and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land. Take one-fifth of the produce, let them gather the food of the good years, and the food should be a reserve. He's basically saying, here's what the dream means, and here's what you should do. Here are the people you should appoint, and here's the policy you should implement to make this work. Wow. He goes all that, and there's silence in the room, and there's tension, and his servants are looking on, and Pharaoh's there, and they're thinking, which way is this going to go? Is he going to have a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down? In verse 37, Pharaoh breaks the silence. The proposal f- pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command, only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Wow! What a transformation! In the morning, he's a forgotten man slave, in prison. In the afternoon, he's second only to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. He gets given Pharaoh's ring. He gets given Pharaoh's chariot. Pharaoh says, everyone's going to bow down before you. No one's going to lift hand or foot in Egypt apart from your word. It's stunning. And then, the scene changes again. We move from scene two to scene three. And this scene, it's not really one scene. It's more like a montage of scenes. You know, like in a film where you get like sort of a few years compressed into two minutes of, of footage And there's music in the background, and you see kind of everything working out. This is what happens in the rest of the chapter. Verse uh, 40, 46 through to the end. It's a a collection of clips. And we've got Joseph there, 30 years old, in his um, internal ceremony. What's it called? When you uh, get the the position you want, anyway. He's there in his ceremony. He's been given his gown, his ring. The next scene, you've got Joseph in his his chariot going around Egypt. And the, the crops are overflowing, and he's gathering the grain into barns. Then you've got a scene of Joseph by his bedside. He's got a child in his arms, and that happens again. He's got two children. His wife's there. Next scene, you've got Joseph in his office, and he's there with his records, and there's queues outside. There's a famine, That the ground is parched, and people are queuing up to try and buy grain, and he's working through his, his paperwork. It's all working out. The dream is coming true. It's all happening, just as he prophesied, just as God said. His policy proposal is shown to be spot on, and he's there, and he's saving lives. It's working. And right in the middle of this kind of montage, you get this, these words, this detail about Joseph's children. Have a look at verse 50. It says, Before the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he's in a foreign land, he's been incredibly successful, and right in the middle of it he acknowledges God. He calls his children names that are all about God and not him. God's made me fruitful, God's made me forget. So in the prison, he acknowledges God, it's not me, it's him. Before Pharaoh, he acknowledges God, it's not me, it's him. And in Egypt, in charge, in the midst of incredible success, he acknowledges God. It's not me. It's him. It's an incredible story. The ultimate kind of rags-to-riches tale. But how does it help? And how does it help us in our sufferings? Not many of us are gifted like Joseph. Not many of us are gifted managers and decision-makers. And not many of us are going to be put in positions of authority like like Joseph was. I'd like to suggest there's, there's one big principle that's at work here. One big principle we can learn from this passage. It's not a comfortable principle, but it's crucial. And it has the power, I think, to make sense of our suffering, to make sense of Joseph's suffering, and actually to transform our suffering and the the, the trials and the hard times that we go through. And here it is. It's this. God allows suffering in the lives of his people for a purpose. And God wants to use suffering to deepen our character our closeness to him, and to increase our fruitfulness for him. It's really important. I'll say it again. God allows suffering in the lives of his people for a purpose. He wants to deepen our character and our closeness to him and increase our fruitfulness for him. That's what's going on in this passage that we've just looked at. So God allows Joseph's suffering. God's responsible for the dreams, and God's responsible for the timings of the dreams, and he delays them. God allows suffering in Joseph's life. Why? Because he wants Joseph to mature. He wants to change Joseph's character. He wants to draw Joseph closer to him. The Joseph that comes out of prison is miles away from the Joseph that the arrogant 17 year old that goes to his brothers and tells the, the, the dreams um, without thinking what he's going to be doing and the, what, he, what he'll be, um, the problems he'll be causing. The Joseph that comes out of prison is, like we've seen, he's bold and confident, but he's humble. And he's got a wisdom that's beyond his years. And he acknowledges God in the midst of that wisdom. He's, he's got a depth of character that's just not there when he's 17. So God takes Joseph through that suffering to mature him and change him. But there's another reason. God takes Joseph through the suffering because he wants to use him. He's got a bigger purpose in mind than just making Joseph a different person. He wants to use him in his grand plan. We get a hint of that in verse 57 of chapter 41. Have a look. It says right at the end of our chapter, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. And the language there that's used, the phrase that's used, is deliberately similar to the phrase that's used back in Genesis 12 when God gives the original promise to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to make you a blessing, and all nations, all the earth, will be blessed through you. It's the same language being used deliberately because the writer wants to show that God has put Joseph through this suffering because he wants to make Joseph part of his grand plan to save the world, to bless the nations. And that's just a little bit of that plan being fulfilled. And it's not just Joseph we see this kind of pattern. It's all the way through the Bible, this pattern that God, before he uses someone, he takes them through suffering. He takes them through trials and through fire. We see it in Abraham. He gets given a promise. He wakes decades and suffers years of failure and frustration before he gets the promised child. We see it in Jacob, who runs away from home um, under fear of being murdered by his brother, having received the promise, and spends years in exile. When he comes back, he's not ready, so he has to have a fight with an angel and be broken properly before he can be used. We see it in Moses, murders a man, again gets sent away into an anonymous wilderness for 40 years before he can be used by God. You see it in David. He's made king, and then he's hunted in the desert, years and years before he's ready to be king of judah and of israel so we see this pattern not just in joseph but all the way through the bible but it's not just true for them it's true for every follower of jesus it's true now for everyone who follows jesus that god uses the same principle in the lives of his followers he allows suffering in our lives for a purpose i remember not long after i got married um i was involved in a preaching class In Bristol, where I lived, a few churches got together and young guys who were looking to sort of have a go at preaching and explore what it was like. Basically, we'd come together and have some training and have a go at preaching and get some feedback. And I remember really clearly, I think it was the first or second session, I overheard a conversation between two of the pastors who were there. Older guys, godly and wise, experienced guys. And one of them said to the other, it's been my experience that young men in ministry need to be broken before they can be useful i thought wow okay i need to take that on board um and i I just imagine the two of them standing there and however many years of experience between them 20 30 years as a pastor each probably seen hundreds of young guys coming through confident sure of themselves quick to speak slow to listen opinionated and have seen them suffer and come out the other side just deepened and slower to speak and quicker to listen And then it's true the other end of the spectrum as well. You go away from the the young and towards the old. And we've all had the experience, I'm sure, of meeting an elderly Christian who's towards the end of their lives. And they've just got this seasoned godliness. And you speak to them. And just their their interest in you and their concern for you and their prayerfulness just, just sort of seems to radiate Jesus. And almost without exception, those old Christians have been through suffering. And they've come through it and they've clung to God through it. It's often the case; the most fruitful are those who've been through the storm and have clung on. And that doesn't mean that we can't serve until we've suffered. Doesn't mean there's a kind of condition on serving God. Not at all. Just that the usefulness, somehow, the character is deeper when we go through the trials. Now, I've said this isn't a comfortable principle. This isn't an easy thing to talk about because suffering is painful and when you're in suffering when you're in the midst of a trial and when life feels like it's falling apart it can be gut-wrenching it's it's hard and it's not easy to see god in it but because the principle is not comfortable doesn't mean it's not true the evidence is there all the way through the bible this just seems to be how god works in our experience but most importantly because it's not comfortable that doesn't mean god's not good Behind everything that we go through, behind our ups and downs, our trials, our sufferings, is the hand of a kind and gentle Father. And he brings everything he brings into our lives because he wants our good. He wants our real good. He wants us to experience real life. And I think we find this hard to understand because of our culture. Our culture makes comfort into a God, into a goal. We're sold things, have this holiday, have this home, wear these clothes, cook this food to make your life more comfortable because that's what life's about. Life is about being comfortable. That's why we find it hard to believe. When we're in a situation that's not comfortable, how God could allow that, how, how, he could, how he could be happy with that, how God could love us and allow us to be uncomfortable. We find that hard. But I was really struck just a couple of weeks ago, having Bronwyn up the front here, and we asked her for prayer points for the Christians in the Middle East and North Africa, a different culture to ours, where it's very, very hard to be a Christian. And their prayer request for us in the West is not, please take this suffering away. They say, please don't pray that God will take the suffering away. Pray that he'll give us the courage and the faith to endure it. And pray that his church will grow in the midst of it. Because they've found something. They've found that when God takes us through suffering and we cling to him in the midst of it, we come through the other side to a deeper character and a deeper closeness and a deeper joy and a deeper fruitfulness that can't be replaced and that can't be got any other way. The pattern of God is through suffering. Through suffering through to the other side, through to depth and through to fruitfulness. And behind all that stands a loving God. And the ultimate proof of that, the ultimate proof is that this is not just a pattern that God lays down for his people. It's a path that he walked himself. So the loving father sent the son he delighted in to go not not around suffering but through it. Jesus didn't go around the cross, he went through the cross. He went down through the deepest and harshest suffering imaginable far deeper than anything we could experience. He went to hell itself and he came out the other side and he stands now experiencing joy and intimacy and closeness with his father that's perfect, greater than anything we could ever imagine. See, the suffering we experience is kind of like death. Jesus actually calls his followers to die. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then he says, if anyone wants to save his life, he'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We're called to death. But we're called to death and resurrection. We're called to go through suffering to resurrection the other side. To a life that is real life. And to a closeness that's real closeness. And to an intimacy with God that's real intimacy that we can't get any other way. And resurrection may not come in this life. It may not come before death. But after death, it certainly will. How do we know? because Jesus was raised, because Jesus was raised, so we will be. Now, this does not mean that God doesn't care or feel our pain. Okay, when we go through suffering, he's not detached emotionally from it. He took Mary and Martha through the suffering of their brother dying, but he still wept at his grave. And this doesn't mean that we can't cry out to God in the storm. We just have to sort of suppress our feelings and say, I'm suffering and it must be okay because God's decreed it. No, Joseph, I'm sure, cried out in prison. David cried out to God in his suffering. Jesus cried out on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? But what it means is that after the crying out, comes surrender. After Joseph cried in the prison, he got to the point of surrender where he just said, God's God and I'm not. After David cries out to God in his Psalms, he so often comes to the place of saying, but I trust in you. Jesus cried out on the cross and then said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Of course, cry out to God. But go through that crying and surrender to Him and let God be God. I want it before I finish. Just three really practical things: before the storm, during the storm, and after the storm. Maybe you're before the storm, and you're, I'm talking. You're thinking, "Yeah, the storm hasn't quite hit yet." Prepare yourself to suffer. Prepare yourself to suffer. In the storm is the worst place to drop an anchor, right? A ship needs to drop anchor before it goes into the storm. So before you're in the storm, internalize this principle. God allows suffering for our good. Internalize it. Let it sink into your your heart. Because in the storm is not the place to be hearing that. You want to hear it now and get it sinking in. In the storm, if you're in the storm, just cling on. Know that God hurts with you. Cry out to him and get through the crying and, and surrender. Or maybe you're after the storm and you've come through. Stay surrendered to God Stay his, keep clinging to him, keep depending on him and talk to him, how do you want to use this suffering in my life, God? How do you want to use this suffering to make me a channel of your blessing? Not a comfortable principle, but so important, a principle that transforms how we approach our suffering, how we think about our suffering, how we make sense of our suffering, how we see God in this. Behind all our suffering stands a loving God who wants our God, who wants life for us, real life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word and for the truth it brings into our hearts and our lives. Please speak to each one here. I pray for any who are in the midst of the storm, who are in the midst of suffering and for whom life is hard at the moment. And I pray that you would cling on to them as they cling on to you and reveal to them your heart for them. Father, I pray for each of us that you would give us the faith to see and to trust that you work all things together for our good. And Father, use suffering our lives to make us more like you, to bring us to that closer walk with you, that, that maturity, that depth of character that is, that is the life that you've promised for us, the real life that you want for us, the best life that we can have. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.